Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where Crude investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is, in fact, becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse. is Heidi Hill, and I work at AWAKE. And AWAKE stands for Abused Women's Aid in Crisis, and it's Anchorage's Emergency Domestic Violence Shelter. I am their Grants and Program Director currently, and I've been there since 2005 in many different roles. I started out as a children's advocate, and I've been a case manager in the shelter and non-residential programs and shelter manager as well. Can you explain what AWAKE is and what it does? Absolutely. So it's our emergency domestic violence shelter here in Anchorage. Um, It is the only one in Anchorage. Um, We have a capacity of 52 beds, and that is for, as you know, a city of nearly 300,000 people. So we have a lot of people needing help at the shelter. We have a lot of wraparound services as well, um, case management programs, transitional housing, legal advocacy, substance use case management as well. So as the program director at AWAKE, what does your daily routine look like? Wow, that's kind of hard to pin down. So I I oversee three managers, two in the shelter and one programs manager. So they supervise all the advocates and case managers um, and that work directly with uh, victims of domestic violence. And so I supervise them. We do a lot of check-ins about things that are going on, but I'm also responsible for all of our grants. So um, reporting, applications, seeking out new funding sources. So it's a very varied workday, generally. And grants, that's extremely important in nonprofits. Yes. We, we would not be able to function without, without grant funding. It is definitely the bulk of our funding. So you mentioned shelters. Yes. What can you tell me about the Awake Shelters? Like I said, it's the only emergency domestic violence shelter in Anchorage. And again, there's 52 beds. We serve adults and children in the shelter. And even though our name is Abused Women's Aid in Crisis, we help any victim of domestic violence, um, male or female, so regardless of gender or the gender of their perpetrator. People come to the shelter when they are unsafe because of a domestic violence incident. And they can come 24 hours a day. They can call 24 hours a day on our crisis line and be screened to come into the shelter. What does security look like at the shelter? It's very high security. Um, We are in a public location, which is a little bit unusual for a domestic violence program. But to compensate for that, we have a very high level of security. So people can be assured of their safety when they come into the building to stay, when they're fleeing their perpetrator. Um, They can also be assured of of complete confidentiality when they come. There are very few exceptions for, under the law, for why we would have to share information. So confidentiality is paramount, as well as physical security when someone comes to the shelter. The statistics surrounding domestic violence in Anchorage is pretty startling. They are. Looking at stats on the AWAKE website, stats that correspond to studies and reports written about these subjects... It says 51% of women in Anchorage have experienced intimate partner violence, sexual assault, or both in their lifetimes. Yes. Another stat says intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all crime. 
Do we know why this is so pervasive in Alaska? That's that's a good question. Um, there are a lot of factors. I don't know that that anyone knows exactly why it's so high here, but it is much much higher than the rest of the nation. Uh, nationwide, about one in three women are victims, and like you said, here um, in Alaska and Anchorage, it's one in two. For um, Alaska Native um, women, it's nearly three and four. So it's, it is very, very high. When we were emailing, you had asked me what we'd talk about. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned a few things that you guys are actually currently working on, mm-hmm. one of which is a, uh, an expansion. Yes, yes. So our numbers have been consistently quite high over the last several years. For much of the last decade, we've been over capacity at least half the time. And so we're, we're fitting, for example, a mother and her children in one bed um, or siblings in one bed, and we're, we're needing extra space, more space in the shelter. So we're looking at um, both expanding our shelter by 15 beds and also uh, renovating much of the space, partly in the shelter and then partly in our, in our administrative area for more programmatic space. We've got a couple of offices that have at least three programs sort of piled in together, and it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to conduct proper case management when you're sharing an office like that. And so with with the shelter expansion, that's going to allow us to be able to spread out, not have to get emergency cots out, not have family sharing beds. And we're also excited because we'll be able to have um, a room for male victims and their children. Currently, we, like I said, we do help, help male victims. However, we have to house them elsewhere because of the setup of our shelter. So with this, with this um, expansion, we're going to be getting a special room uh, just for them. And then in our administrative section, we'll have separate offices for each program. And that will allow those case managers to be meeting with their clients more privately and be able to have, have more confidential meetings. So what does it look like maybe from start to being in the shelter? What does that look like for a, a victim of abuse? There's a f- couple of different ways that they can access services. And I think the most common way for people is to start is by calling the crisis line. And I, I should mention that number. And it's 272-0100. And that's 24 hours a day. There's always somebody, there's always a trained advocate or case manager on that line. And they'll you don't have to give your name. You don't have to give any information. You can ask questions. And friends and family can call as well um, if they need help or advice. So if someone is experiencing domestic violence, they can call and they can you know, learn about our services. They can ask to be screened for shelter. Not everyone needs to come into shelter, but they may need, need other services. So they can still come meet with the case manager. If they need to come into shelter, then they would do a screening. Um, and that's that takes about 10 minutes. And it's it's basically a series of questions to determine kind of what's going on in their situation. Is this the best option for them? Are there other options that, that may be better? And then after that is done, staff will decide whether to, to bring them into the shelter. And then they can come in anytime over the next day or so. And then they sit down with a staff member and do some paperwork. And then they're they're brought to the room and shown around and, and settled in, basically. And what is that decision process look like to accept or to not accept? It's it's a difficult thing because we can't bring everyone in who calls, which is really unfortunate. And again, that's that's one reason we're needing to expand the shelter is to deny fewer people access to the shelter. We look at their immediate safety issue. And our our population that we help is is domestic violence victims. However, people who are unsafe for other reasons can also access shelter. So sexual assault victims, trafficking victims, um, people who've, who are unsafe for, um, from other crime, they can also access the shelter as well. But we're looking at immediate safety issues, other safe options they may have. For example, if our numbers are 
very high overcapacity. If the perpetrator has been arrested and and will be in jail for a while, then maybe that person can come in for non-residential services. So we, we may not have them come to shelter immediately. But then it, if our numbers are lower and that person um, you know, has no other safe options, we'll be bringing them in. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not an easy process for us to, to decide. And it's not a, a simple matter of how many beds we have open. It's what their situation looks like at that time. It's probably not a very easy decision for a person of domestic violence to come in and make that decision to um, walk into a wake. Right. Is, is there usually kind of like a um, a last straw that that like I'm I'm finally going to do this because of X, Y, and Z? Sometimes, sometimes it's it's leaving an abusive situation is is generally a process, and most victims will leave. Um, an average of six to eight times before they have left for good. They typically are getting a lot of pressure from their family and their friends. Um, maybe they're hearing things like, why don't you just leave? The abuse would stop if you just leave. And those are not helpful things um, to say to someone who's experiencing domestic violence. Oh, really? Yeah. Can you, <laughs> can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Um, for, it's, it's, it's not helpful for a couple of reasons. The first is that it puts the... It essentially puts the blame on the victim for what's going on. So if you just leave, the abuse will stop is kind of what that's saying. And it, that's not true because the, the victim is not causing the abuse. Um, it's the abuser's choice to use violence. And actually, because abuse is all about power and control, if the victim leaves, the abuser will likely view that as a loss of power and control and will then up his or her tactics um, in order to get the victim back. And so homicide rates actually jump after the victim has left. And I don't think that family and friends are always aware. And so we, we try to do a lot of education with the people that call us looking for help for their loved one. We have, you know, parents call and say, how can I make my daughter come in to meet with you? How can, you know, you make her leave? And we, we explain why, why we don't do that, but also what the dynamics of the domestic violence in their situation are. What do you say in the case of the uh, the mother or the father saying, how do I get my daughter to come in? How do I make her come in? We tell them that we understand that that comes from a place of, of love for the child um, or, their, or their loved one and that they have the best of intentions. However, because abuse is all about power and control, the person who's experiencing the domestic violence has to be able to make his or her own choices because that's what they're being denied in their situation right now by their partner. And so whatever those choices are, they have to be able to make them. And so we as, as staff members never tell someone, oh, you should leave, you should do this, you should do that, because we're not going to replace the controlling partner um, is how we, how we view it. And so we, we will talk to people for as long as they want on the crisis line. We'll, we'll lay out whatever options we can think of, but we're never going to tell them you have to do this or you have to do that. They have to be able to make that choice. It's, it's for their own d dignity and empowerment. And you said that it usually takes six to eight times before they actually, you know, make the decision to leave. Or, or attempts at leaving. And, and those, those attempts may be one day, or maybe it's packing a suitcase and, you know, going to mom's house for a day or so, and then, or it's a week, but it's, people very often go back. And so we, we will see people, the same people many times, either in the same relationship or, or different relationships, um, attempting to leave safely. So you said different relationships, mm -hmm. but they're getting the same abuse. Right. Where does that come from? That also has probably a lot of different factors, a lot of, or, you know, of origin, but um, 
a big risk factor is seeing domestic violence um, as a child. So a lot of the people that we help have had a lot of violence in their lives. Um, they've seen it between their parents, maybe other relatives. I, I, I really remember very clearly one lady um, in support groups. So, we, so as an aside, we, we run um, a lot of support groups and education groups as well, and I can talk about those in a minute. But one day in support group, she was sharing with the rest of the group saying, you know, I was only beaten half as often as the rest of the women in my family. And by that, she meant her mother, her grandmother, her aunts, everyone. And so I thought I was lucky. And it, just hearing her put it that way in that perspective makes sense. If that's if that's your frame of reference, then maybe you do think that you're lucky. And and that's that's very sad because it's so unhealthy. Well, it's normalizing violence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How often do you see that? All the time. All the time. With with that statistic of of one in two women being abused um, just in Anchorage alone and across the state, that's that's a lot of people. We all know somebody. If it's not us, it's it's our friend, it's our relative, and it's it's so common. Um, and so yeah, it is often very normalized in families, and that's one reason that we we have the the education and the support groups that we do to teach people about the dynamics of domestic violence, what warning signs are, how it affects children, how to set boundaries, all all those you know many different topics surrounding domestic violence. And and I remember another another time in a, a warning signs class. We also call them red flags of abuse. Um, another lady was, we were kind of going down this this list of different warning signs, and she had, you know, gotten away from her partner, had been safe for many months, had started to see somebody new, and she was already checking stuff off. But it was, and it was such From a, this new person. From this new person. But it was the subtle sort of early signs, and she was just really happy to be able to see that at that point in the relationship versus, you know, months or years in. So that's that's the value of having that education. And so, like I said before, some people need to come for services, but they don't need to be in the shelter. But that's one of the services that a lot of our non-residential folks access is those groups. And people can come to groups for months, years if they want for that support. And what do the groups look like? If if I'm a new member and I'm, I'm going in, what mm -hmm. can I expect? Um, for, for like a support group, for example... You know, we're, we're sitting around a, a conference table and we go over some some basic guidelines, you know, giving people their own turn, no interrupting, that kind of thing. You know, confidentiality. We cover that quite a bit. You know, what's said in this room and who's in this room that stays in here. We don't share that outside. Um, and often new people, when they come into a support group, are real reluctant to share. This may be the first time that they have been able to talk about it or hear other people talk about it because isolation is a huge part of domestic violence. And so cutting people off from their friends and family and any other resources for safety is, is you know, essential to keep that power and control for the abuser. So sometimes people will come in and they will just, they'll just listen for a, a couple sessions. And then, you know, if they want to share, they're more than welcome. And then in same with the education groups, we pr we're presenting a topic, but if, you know, they want to talk about that particular topic and how it relates to their situation, they are more than welcome to do that, but they don't have to. We never make anyone say anything. They can just listen. But I think being around other people who have experienced not the same situation, but similar, similar things can be really helpful and very healing for people because so often people, when they are isolated, they, they may not know. Maybe they haven't seen this in the rest of their family. They, they think no one else experiences this. No one will believe them because the, the abuser very often tells them no one will believe them. Abusers can be very charming to people outside of that relationship, um, very manipulative. They can often be very powerful people in society, and they will tell their victims that, you know, if you go if you go and tell someone what's happening, no one's going to believe you. 
and no one will help you. And so we always believe um, what people tell us when they come in. What does a common abuse or domestic violence situation look like here in Anchorage? Well, that's a, that's a big question. I think there's a lot of commonalities in abusive situations, although there's often, a lot of, of course, a lot of, I mean, every situation is unique as well. But domestic violence generally starts out with seemingly very subtle and I don't say mild, but it, that sounds like it's not bad, but, you know, more subtle um, signs of it. If you go out on a first date with someone, they're not going to hit you on that first date because there wouldn't be a second one. But if, you know, there's that, that control is sort of gradually implemented, maybe they don't want you to see your, your friends anymore and they'll give a reason like, oh, your friends don't like me or, you know, I'd rather it just be us all the time. Um, they can sometimes frame it, you know, in, in nice ways, but the effect is that they're getting cut off from their friends and then their family. That's pretty typical of you know, not letting victims see people that um, support them, having them stop activities that they love. It could progress to not allowing them to work or forcing them to work and then and then taking whatever money comes from that. So financial abuse is a big part of it as well. Not every relationship has physical violence. And so, you know, I've, I've met with, with women over the years who, who say, you know, I don't think I should be here talking to you because I am not being hit. But they're being severely controlled. Um, have have no, they, they have to, you know, have another reason to be out of the house for that half hour, or that hour that they're meeting with me. So so they have to lie. They have to lie, yeah. And that's if, when they're finding themselves in that situation. That's that's a pretty extreme level of control. We've had people who've installed you know tracking devices in their victims' cars, cameras in the home that they're unaware of, tracking devices in in phones, so technology can be used against against victims. Um, so that control really can ratchet up. Sometimes we, we've had people call us, but they don't know where they're calling us from because they're being held somewhere and they, and they don't know. And so we, you know, help, helping someone in that situation can be very, very difficult. But, you know, we'll, we'll safety plan with them and we'll find a way to find out where they are and then and then get them help. But it can... It, all, all domestic violence happens on a spectrum, so it gets it can get ex- very extreme um, as well. And when physical violence comes in, then obviously the, the lethality of that situation has increased quite a bit. So the spectrum, are there phone calls that Awake gets that you're like, okay, this is a talking phone call, and then there are other phone calls where you're like, action needs to be taken now? By action, do you mean? Maybe on your part or Awake's part where you have to contact the authorities mm-hmm. or something along those lines? That does happen. Um, and I mentioned confidentiality before. And under state law, confidentiality is is very, very tight on what we do. It's more, more confidential, I guess, than HIPAA, for example, um, that medical providers are under. So we can't disclose to the authorities almost anything that we know. The only times we can are if, if someone is in immediate danger. So for example, if, if I'm on the phone with somebody and I hear an abuser come in and she says he has a gun and he, or something like that, or I hear an assault in progress, that's an immediate threat to life and safety. And so I, I, I then by law have to call the police. But if an adult comes to me very beaten up and we're sitting and talking, I can't report that assault unless they're under 18 or a vulnerable or elderly adult. So there aren't very, oh, over the number of, of the thousands of calls we take every year, there aren't that many that, re, that 
result in a 911 call. It's only if something is immediately happening there or they report something that meets one of those, those, really, um, those exceptions under the law. Can you give me an example of maybe somebody who has come in and they've, you know, they've given you their story and they've gone through the whole process and then now they live there? Mm -hmm. So I explained the screening procedure before. Um, and so once, once we bring them in, we, we sit down, we do some paperwork, not, not a lot. Um, and then, like I said, we get them settled. We give them a tour of the building so they can kind of know where everything is. Um, and then we get them set up with a case manager and an advocate. Um, the case manager oversees kind of all the resources that they would be needing and accessing. And I, I do want to point out that we, again, we don't tell them, you know, you should access this resource or that resource, or you need to work on this or that. We talk to them about what they want to work on. That could be housing, education, could be substance abuse treatment. There's a lot of different things. Um, and so a lot of the residents have kids that come in. I think kids are probably a third to a half of our population at any given time. So they're dealing with that. Um, and the average stay at the shelter is, is about 30 days. Some people stay shorter amounts, some, some longer. Um, it is, it is case by case, but it is an emergency shelter too. And so there's always more people needing to come in. So we're, what we're trying to do with people when they're in the shelter is identify whatever resources they need, help them be as safe as possible. We're not just going to be like, well, it's 30 days out you go. You know, we want people to be safe. So if that means staying longer, it means staying longer and, and helping them that way. So people, when they're in the shelter, and again, we, we don't replace the controlling partner. So we operate under something called empowerment-based advocacy. So for example, you know, you can imagine with 50 some people living in a building, there's a lot of chores that would need to be done. We don't force people to do chores. Um, we don't say if you don't mop, you have to leave or anything like that because that's forcing, that's controlling. Mm -hmm. um, and so people choose to contribute any way they, they want to. They can help cook dinner. They can um, meet with the employment specialist to look for a job. They can, or if they already have a job, they can, they can do that. We don't have any restrictions on movement. And most are looking for safe housing is a big, is a big thing. So that, that's a, the people that we serve are spending a lot of time looking for housing. Housing anchorage is extremely expensive. I mentioned before that financial abuse is a big part of domestic violence. And the people that come to us for help have often been cut off from all resources and so, or not allowed to work. So trying to find a job and daycare for the kids when you haven't worked or your abuser has made it very difficult to keep a job and given you a poor job history, that can be difficult. So that's why we have an employment specialist to help folks out. So that's kind of a, the typical stay is trying to get those big pieces in place, the housing employment prior to moving on to safe, to a, hopefully a safe permanent housing situation. And then while they're there, of course, they're accessing, if they choose, um, education and support groups. And again, they don't have to do that. Um, they don't have to meet with their case manager. We're, we're trying to make it as uncontrolling as possible. We have, we have some shelter guidelines because, you know, it's communal living and there's children. But for the most part, they are choosing the services that they want to take part in. And that is a, a very empowering feeling. You know, finally, they can make their own decisions mm -hmm. when they're in the shelter. Where do people usually go afterwards? Or what is the ideal situation? The ideal situation is moving into safe, permanent housing and the abuser is not around, if, if that's what they want. And I do have to say that a lot of people, and I, I don't have a, a percentage, but people very often love, love their partner. They don't necessarily want that to end. They want the abuse to stop. And 
that would be ideal. But again, it's the abuser's choice whether or not to do that. So sometimes they do return uh, to the abuser. And that could be because of, very often because of threats um, the abuser has made against them or the children. Or they don't see a way to support themselves um, without the abuser's assistance. But if they don't return to the abuser, they are hopefully able to move into a safe permanent housing situation. We do have rapid rehousing programs at Awake. And so, again, they don't have to be in the shelter to be eligible for those programs. But while they're there, they can be referred to them. And those are very helpful in getting people quickly moved into housing with some support um, in the beginning. You mentioned money as a form of keeping someone hostage, basically. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So financial abuse generally takes the form of someone generally not having access to funds. So an abuser may say, well, if you leave, you'll have nothing. You know, maybe the house is in his name, bank accounts in his name, all of that stuff, the car. And so someone, you know, we I've worked with, with several people over the years who have, who are very wealthy, who have, you know, from the outside, very, you know, wonderful lives. But on paper, they've left and it's been wiped out because the abuser has control of everything. So then they're left with nothing. So controlling people's access to uh, finances and then controlling access to education and employment as well. Abusers often show up at work repeatedly, call and make threats, call, you know, just, or just repeatedly call and harass. And sometimes people are let go because of that. And so they've learned that if they can, if they, if they continue that behavior, then their victim will lose their job. And so if you can control someone's um, access to education and employment, then you have more power and control over them. Um, they're, more, they're more dependent on the abuser because of that. So looking at the, the person, the perpetrator, the mm -hmm. one doing the abusing, where do they learn these types of tactics? Are they systemic? Did they learn from you know, their mother and father? Mm -hmm. Did they learn from their grandparents? It is a learned behavior. There's, there's a lot of myths out there as to what causes abuse, but it's, it's a learned behavior. So if a child sees, you know, for example, if a boy sees his father abusing his mother, he's at a huge risk of becoming an abuser himself. Not, not every abuser was raised in a situation like that, but that's a, that's the, a major risk factor in a child's life. Yeah, so we do a lot of work with children. We have three full-time children's advocates who work just with the kids in the shelter, and we teach them much much of what we teach um, the adults, but you know, you know, age-appropriate level. But um, we're trying to intervene in that cycle so that those kids don't come back as victims or their partners don't come back as victims. Mm -hmm. And how do you talk to a child about abuse? It depends on their age. Um, so... You know, you, you can tell teens a lot more than you can tell young kids. But, you know, for example, hands are not for hitting. If it's a small child, it's, you know, a simple phrase. But, you know, children will, the, the children that we see in the shelter will often recreate what they've seen at home. So if they've seen adults hitting each other in the home, they may be hitting their siblings or other kids in the group. And so we'll sit down with them and talk, tell them why that's not okay. Kids often, I mean, there's another spectrum of, of reaction to abuse. So some kids become very withdrawn. Some become very aggressive acting out. They may, for example, if they haven't wet the bed in years, they may start again when they come into the shelter because of the trauma that they've experienced. So there's a, there's a wide range of reactions that kids have, but we will 
work with them directly and work with moms as well. Um, we're not therapists and we're not counselors. And so we do a lot of referrals to those services. And we do have an in-house counselor who's um, from another agency, but she's housed in the building. And that's been a huge help because children, children are deeply impacted by domestic violence, even very, very young children, but they're also very resilient. And so getting them help can be very effective in helping, helping them get over what they've seen. And what does abuse look like at different ages? So if we're looking at a child, a youth, an adult, and then an elder, I'm sure the types of abuse mm -hmm. are different for each one. Yeah, for sure. Like, you mean, do you mean witnessing or experiencing? Maybe both, but let's maybe talk about um, experiencing. Okay. And then we'll go on okay. to talk about the next one. Yeah. Okay. So... I don't have a number on how many of the children that we see have been directly abused versus witnessing domestic violence. And, and I mean, it's, you could make the very good argument that witnessing domestic violence is child abuse. But, for, you know, for example, hitting the partner versus hitting the children. Small children experience it a bit differently than older children. The witnessing, I think, um, because small children believe that often believe that they have caused the abuse in the family because you know, kids have that sort of, young kids have that sort of self-centered worldview, which is natural. So anything that happens around them is because of what they've done. So they internalize that blame for what is what is going on in the house. Older kids tend to... In the same way that a child will think that it's their fault that their parents are getting divorced. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, maybe, maybe they left their toys out and the abuser stepped on them and got mad and then... It, escalated from there, they'll see that as, oh, if I had cleaned up my toys, this wouldn't have happened. And mm -hmm. that's that's not true because it would have been something else. The abuser would have used something else as an excuse to do what he or she was already going to do. But I've seen with, with and again, I'm not, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a child trauma specialist, but what I've seen was as kids get older, they start thinking about intervening, kind of having this sort of a superhero kind of idea. I'm going to help mom or I'm going to help dad. And, and then as they get to be teens, sometimes they will act on that. And that's where it can get pretty dangerous when kids start to intervene physically in assaults. I worked with one one person who that was what brought her to us was her teenage son was gonna was gonna end things basically, and so she she realized that danger level had reached it, it couldn't go it couldn't go on and so she came with the kids to to end that and that cycle and and that was good that 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 happened. That was a positive situation. It, it was positive that she came to the shelter because her teenage son. Had, had planned to to harm his father to to protect his mother mm -hmm. so and that's that's not unusual we've seen that quite a bit over the years so it's it, it kind of depends on how how old they are what what their view of it is maybe what they think caused it how they react to it so that's but, the witnessing portion of it correct yeah, the witnessing portion the experiencing mm -hmm. portion so regardless of their age it will have a, a deep impact on them and i, I don't know if you're familiar with the adverse childhood experiences study cases. Yes, yeah. yeah. So kids who have witnessed abuse are at many times the general population's risk of various problems, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, various health effects. So that for all ages, that's that's one of the biggest besides besides the risk of becoming either a victim or an abuser, it's it's those other health risks that are that are um, the, I think the biggest impact for kids who have who have been abused regardless of their age. So we've talked about what abuse looks like for an adult, for a youth, and a child. What does abuse look like for an elder? Somebody, say, uh, you know, grandma or grandpa. Mm -hmm. Overall, 
we don't see as many um, elders in our program as we do young people, um, young adults. Um, however, that doesn't mean that they're not abused at the same or higher rates. But one, one form that we do see often is financial abuse of elders. So sometimes, say, grandkids are living with grandma and they're taking her checks, they're taking her pills, that sort of thing. And they're being controlled. And they may be physically abusive as well in order to maintain that control. But um, yeah, take, taking, taking resources from an elder is, is fairly common with elder abuse, unfortunately. That is reportable under the law um, under certain circumstances. So we do make some reports to Adult Protective Services when those things are going on in a home. But elders are very vulnerable, mm. as are people with disabilities. They're at much higher risk than the general population. They're just more trustworthy. They're more, they're more trusting, but they're also just more vulnerable. They're more, de depending on the issue with the with the person, they may be, the abuser may be able to maintain control um, mm -hmm. better. They may be able to isolate them effectively. And, so. you know, I guess that comment came from a place where I'm thinking of, say, a grandson mm -hmm. or a granddaughter are going to, you know, grandma and grandpa's house and then kind of maybe manipulating them for an end that is give me your money right. rather than, you know, just some person off the street doing that or, or maybe a, um, a spam caller. Right, right. I mean, I, we've, we've heard a lot lately about how, um, you know, spam callers and how older people are, are more vulnerable to those to those calls. But with, you know, with, with all of these situations, you're at much, much higher risk from your family, unfortunately, from mm -hmm. your loved ones than you are from strangers for for this type of violence, which is, is very sad. So there are inevitably women out there possibly listening to this who are currently in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. Some of them might not be able to recognize the early signs of abuse. What do those signs look like? The early signs are often name calling insults. And like I mentioned before, sort of that start, that start of, a bit of control of, you know, not wanting someone to do their favorite activities, not wanting them to see their family and friends, um, trying to control their time. Um, that's, that's often how it starts out. Um, you know, saying things like, you know, with those insults saying, you know, wh whatever it might be, you're fat, you're stupid, you're lazy. No one, no one else will ever want you. So if you leave me, you'll never have anyone else, that kind of thing. It, it progresses then to, generally to threats kind of at the other extreme and controlling of time. So if someone is being controlled, if they don't feel like they are able to go where they want, when they want, you know, see who they want to see, do what they want to do, then there's a likelihood that that's, that's why, that it's, you know, there's some domestic violence happening in there. And it may be in the early stages, the abuser may explain it away, say things like, you know, I don't, I don't want you to, I don't want you to work there because all those guys look at you and they'll take you away from me. Well, that's, that's controlling. She's an mm -hmm. adult. She can, you know, do what she wants and work where she wants, but they'll often frame it in sort of a protective way. And so that can be very confusing to a victim early on, you know, are they trying to control me? Are they trying to protect me? And, and maybe if they've grown up not being protected by the people who are supposed to protect them, that can come across as very comforting in the beginning. And that kind of helps the abuser, you know, build that, build that power and control. And so, like I mentioned earlier, it's never just straight off the bat physical abuse. It, it does build very slowly, typically. And eventually it gets to the point where it's not safe to, you know, argue, to 
make a different choice to, you know, go do what you want to do. It becomes physically unsafe to do so. You know, this might be an unanswerable question, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but thinking about the abuser, Mm -hmm. let's use a situation where it's it's a man and a woman and the man, the abuser, is putting all of these, you know, you can't go over to your friend's house because I want to hang out with you. He's, he's you know, and then it, it, it escalates. Mm-hmm. What it comes down to, at least in my mind, is that woman is an object to him now. That's his property. Basically, yeah. Going from one end of the spectrum of, I don't want you to hang out with your friends to hitting, that sounds, you know, but it happens. It happens. And so how does that, I mean, is it a slippery slope or is it like... It, I don't know if I would, I would describe it that way, but the tactics the abuser uses are very calculated. So people will often you know, say, if they're an abuser, they'll say it about themselves or their victim might say it or other people might say it, but that they've lost, lost control or they have an anger problem or they just can't help it or something like that. But abusers decide which tactics to use on their victims and they don't typically act that way to anybody else around them. They don't treat their boss that way, their friends, their family. It's and, it, and that actually helps them maintain the power and control over the victim because if no one else sees this, that maybe no one will believe her. So people really, really need to believe their their friends and loved ones when they come forward with, with this. Um, um, it may be very surprising to hear about it, but the so the abuser is choosing to use which tactics or choosing to use the tactics that, that he feels are going to be effective. So, if, so he's going to up those gradually. And that's why it's... Each situation is a little bit different and may not progress to domestic, to um, to physical violence because if they, you know, if the tactics the tactics that they're using are creating the amount of control that that's that they want, then that may be where they keep it. But typically, they're having to escalate over time, and so generally things don't stay at a low level. Um, they they do typically escalate, and there's a cycle that these things go through. The faster that happens, the more dangerous it is, and that cycle is. Um, it's called the honeymoon and then the tension and then um, explosion phase. So in the honeymoon can be when you first meet somebody, you know, things are good. And then tension starts to build because communication's not healthy and someone's trying to control you. And then it, it something bad happens and there's an explosion. It could be verbal assault, physical assault, sexual assault, something like that. And then it cycles back around to honeymoon where at this point there could be apologies or promises or maybe blaming sometimes that happens in the honeymoon phase you know it's your fault that i did that i told you i didn't want you know lasagna for dinner i wanted spaghetti or whatever so the victim is going to be internalizing that and thinking okay you know this didn't happen before. it hasn't happened yet before it's only happened once so maybe maybe he means it when he promises it'll never happen again or maybe it was my fault when he blames her for it but then inevitably it goes back to that tension and then back to that explosion. And so the faster that cycling and the more severely it's cycling, for example, if the like it becomes physical, those assaults um, and you know extreme physical assaults, that's where the danger is is rapidly increasing. Do you have any examples, any real world examples of these situations that we've been talking about? Um, one, one example that kind of shows that that um, escalation of violence in a situation is a family we worked with initially several years ago and it was mainly emotional abuse so a lot of insults a lot of um control you know you can't work you know this person she had to stay in the house she had to stay with kids and then it was starting to cross over into 
basically into physical abuse because of the control over food. And so the abuser would not, it was financial abuse and I guess physical abuse because of the abuser would not give the the victim money for food, wouldn't provide food. And so she and the kids weren't getting very much to eat. So, so that to me is, is a form of physical abuse. And this, this progressed until probably a couple years after that, she came to us and had been severely beaten, you know, nose broken, very, very, very um, severely assaulted. And so while that hadn't happened when we had first been working with the family, it, it was not an unusual thing to see in that progression because we see that with a lot of families, very similar situations. The control over resources, so food, vehicle, money. And, you know, and, and because children were in that situation or being harmed by a lack of a resource, you know, that then becomes um, reportable had it been only an adult. Unfortunately, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to to say anything, but we would we would get them safe, we would get them resources. But we, we see that often progressing in those relationships. Um, and for whatever reason, the abuser feels justified in using those tactics, you know, again, that, that resource control, and then severe physical abuse to, to reach their aim of power and control over this person. But it's, it's not unusual um, to, see, to see that progression. So how many women or families does AWAKE service each year? Um, over the last three fiscal years, our average is, was 1,600 unique individuals, um, so unduplicated numbers, and that's across all programs. We typically have around... 800, a little bit more, um, in shelter itself during the year. And those, and again, unduplicated. So these are folks who may be coming more than once throughout the year. But that's um, that 1,600 numbers across all programs. So shelter, non-residential programs, transitional housing. Le- we have uh, legal advocates, and I should um, point that, them out. We have legal advocates down at the courthouse in the domestic violence office, and they can help people with uh, protective orders and applying for pro bono legal representation. Going in front of a judge and talking about your situation, which you may never have disclosed before, is very intimidating. And it can be a very confusing process. And so having our advocates there helping with that can be can be a lot of help. They're not lawyers and they can't um, provide legal advice, but they can help explain the process and, and accompany the person to court. So have you noticed this number increasing or decreasing? You know, it goes up and down every year for Various reasons, and I'm not sure why. So sometimes, um, like our legal numbers will be much higher than they were the year before, but the shelter numbers might be a little bit lower, or vice versa. Maybe the shelter numbers have gone way up, and other programs have gone down. So over time, they're increasing. I think, I mean, the population's increasing. We're we're getting the word out about our services more, so people know where we are, um, how to access um, those services. So I think. Uh, seeing more people isn't isn't necessarily an indication that there's more of a problem. It's maybe more awareness as well. We we have a prevention department, and we've actually doubled that, the staff in that department over the past year. And they are out in the community in the schools talking to students, to professional groups, to community members about our services and healthy relationships and um, and that sort of thing. And that that amount of outreach has also brought in quite a few people. So you just mentioned a little bit before awareness. Yes. Is that how we stop this? I think so. I think so. Um, our mission is, our stated mission is to provide domestic violence, safe shelter, intervention, and prevention. And so, 
you know, the emergency shelter obviously is, is, is at the shelter portion and as is the intervention. So when, when someone's had, you know, if, if someone is assaulted today and needs a safe place to stay, that's, and coming to the shelter, receiving services, that's intervention. But the prevention is probably how we're going to be able to lower the numbers, maybe eliminate it completely from the community. And so teaching, teaching the next generation, um, what does a healthy relationship look like? You know, if, especially if they're, if they're seeing very unhealthy relationship dynam- dynamics at home, you know, this may be their chance to learn what's not okay. Back when I was a children's advocate, I did. Um, we didn't have a de- prevention department at the time, and so we were all kind of out in the community doing these presentations. And I remember being at McLaughlin and talking to the boys about um, uh, warning signs, basically, of, of abusive behavior. And I remember one kid coming up after that we were done and just, he was horrified. He's like, I've, I see this in myself. I, I'm, I'm doing these things. Does that mean... I can't change. And, and I was like, no, no, you can change. And as long as you're aware of it. And it was that awareness that he, you know, that, you know, that he, he recognized that this was not okay, but, you know, until then, this is maybe what he'd seen growing up. And so being able to talk to kids and, and the community in general, I think is, is definitely the way to, to get ahead of this, you know, amount of violence in our community. So in your experience, do you think Anchorage is getting better or worse? I don't know if I can answer that question. Um, I think, I think from our perspective, I mean, we see some of the worst things that people do to each other every day. So it's, it's hard to not have the perspective that that's how everybody lives. Um, and I know, I know that's not how, how everybody lives, but we are also painfully aware of, of how high the numbers are. Um, the, UAA Justice Center does the Alaska Victimization Survey. They've got uh, one specific for Anchorage, some for the state, and then some for other um, areas of the state. And the ones for Anchorage from 2011 and then the one in 2015, the numbers did go down slightly. And that's really, really encouraging. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the next one that hopefully will be coming out. I haven't heard whether it's planned or what year it would be out, but if they do another one, I would. it would be really interesting to see, um, you know, using the same survey parameters, is it still falling? And is that a trend? So, is the reason that it that it is difficult for you to answer because, say, awake the shelters are always full. Mm-hmm. You're you're constantly seeing this, yeah. and so when you actually do look at those numbers, you're seeing an outside source objectively kind of uh, using data uh, figure that this is going down. Mm-hmm. But in your experience, it's just kind of level. Yeah, I think, I mean, even if the, the numbers went down slightly in between the two, it's it's still one in two. Like, I think it was, you know, it went down by a few people per hundred. And so that's that's wonderful. But it's still it's still half of the women in town. And based on census data, that's, you know, any given year, that's nearly 10,000 women that are getting assaulted in their homes. And so, yeah, for that makes our 52 bed shelter seem too small for for that scale. So I, you know, I, I don't, I personally haven't seen enough data to to know that it's getting worse or getting better, but Alaska is consistently number one in the nation for domestic violence rates, for women being killed by men, for child abuse, for sexual assault. We may go up or down in the rankings because, you know, our small population, you know, a a small change in numbers can can move us up or down because it's a per capita measure, but we're still almost always at the top. And so we're still seeing very high levels of violence. Do you have any theories about why that is, why we see such high rates? Um, 
I, I'm probably not the one to to answer that. I, I know that there's a lot of intergenerational trauma, and in Alaska specifically, there's a lot of historical trauma. You know, with colonization, that that brought in a lot, a lot of really terrible things for people historically, and that doesn't necessarily go away unless it's dealt with. And and we do see a lot of efforts to to help people heal from that. But you know, that that is a big part of it. I I don't know if maybe isolation is another cause, but I, you know, it's because it's always the abuser's choice to behave this way. It's kind of hard to then look at other factors that may be influencing it. So I, I, th I think it's probably a lot of the intergenerational trauma. We, I mean, we, we are working now, now that I've been here there nearly 15 years, we're working with people who are there as children who are now back as adults with their own children in the shelter. And so the more work we can do with people in that situation, the more we can help maybe prevent those children, you know, becoming, you know, growing up and in 15 years being there with their kids. Seeing something like that intergenerational where you see a child and then you see them show back up as an adult, does, mm -hmm. does it seem a little futile sometimes? Um, not to me. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's very sad. Um, I don't want to say it's frustrating because we 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 never get frustrated with anyone for coming back, no matter how often they need to they need to access our services. In another way, it's good that there's a safe place for them to go because prior to to us opening in 1977, there was no safe place um, in Anchorage for people to go. And so, at least now they can come, they can be safe, they can they can get education, they can get support. And I, I know it does make a difference because I've seen it make a difference mm -hmm. um, to the people that we work with, but. To me, it's just, it's, it's very sad um, when it's continuing like that. To take that a next step further, um, futile when we're considering humanity. Like, mm. we just keep doing these terrible things to each other. We do. Um, I think it, it, it does seem like we live in a very violent time and... You know, we I, we hear a lot about all the crime that is happening, and I th I do think part of that is because we have so many sources of information now, which is great. But we also hear about it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I you know I, I read you know news stories about how you know when you look at this from the long view of the last I don't know several hundred years, we're actually living in one of the safest times for people, and it's it's it, it helps me to keep that perspective that yes, things are very bad um, in in. For, for some, you know, parts of our population and, um, and for our city as a whole in many ways. But at the same time, it, it could be a lot worse and it has been a lot worse. And so it's also encouraging to what we, uh, it, it's encouraging to see what is considered acceptable now. So I think society in general finds this to be unacceptable. And that fact is very encouraging. Whereas 30, 40 years ago, cops may not have responded to someone's house because there was an assault. That's a private matter. You know, we're not going to get involved. Whereas now this is a crime and we're going to get it taken care of. So that change has been, that's very encouraging to see that to be, it's taken seriously. It's not the victim's fault. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, not acceptable to society. So to, to me, that's encouraging and, and, and no, the problem hasn't been solved yet, but I, I see that as progress. And so if we can create that, you know, or continue to encourage that culture of, nonviolence, essentially, you know, and that's, that's something that Awake's Prevention Department is actively involved in, um, is building that, building that culture of nonviolence in Anchorage. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a long game. It's not, 
something that's going to happen next year, maybe even in five years. But if we can, you know, I, when I, I think about like our, all the adults that we serve, the, the, the biggest percentage are the, are probably under 30. And so if we're presenting in, you know, middle schools and high schools now, you know, in 10 or 15 years, is that going to help decrease the, that number? And are, are they still going to be the greatest segment of our adult population? I, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to, we'd have to see. So this is, so I try, I try to keep that long, that long view forward and, and backward in time to, to, to keep that perspective and to not get frustrated and, and not get too, too down because it, it is, the work is very, um, very stressful and very, um, I mean, we see trauma all day long. And so it's hard sometimes to be able to keep it being hopeful and um, keep that perspective. I imagine working in this field takes its toll on you. Yeah. What was your motivation for getting into this work? Um, for me, um, so I'm, I'm not a social worker by training. I did anthropology and history in university. And then I, I went overseas and taught English as a second language. And when I was coming back to Alaska, I got um, a job and just a sales job. And I mean, it, I found that I just couldn't get invested in it. I didn't really, I mean, I was, I, I liked going out and talking to people and, and all that, but I didn't really care if they bought stuff or not. It was not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like to, to, to society, I didn't feel like it was worthwhile really. Cause anybody could, I mean, I don't know, like you could do it. And I just, um, this wasn't feeling like it was like it was a worthwhile thing to do. And so I, I saw an opening, an ad for an opening for children's advocate and, you know, kind of listing the, the duties and, and, you know, and what awake does. And I thought, now that seems something that's really like something that's really a worthwhile job. And I, I just, I thought that sounded great, very difficult, but great. And so that got me into it. And I, you know, I remember friends and family thinking that was going to be you know, really hard and really depressing. And, and it surprisingly wasn't in the way that they worried. I mean, the, the people that we serve are, have been through terrible things and, you know, a lot of trauma, they're very vulnerable, but at the same time, the, the atmosphere of the shelter is very, is, is actually quite positive. We have a wonderful staff, very, very dedicated, uh, very well-trained staff, and they, they do everything they can to make it a very positive experience for everybody. I mean, we understand that it's difficult for anybody to come into a communal environment, especially if they haven't been around a lot of people. So we try to make it as comfortable as possible and as positive as possible and, you know, and do fun activities and things like that. So that, and that kept me there, that, that environment of that positive environment and the worthwhile work um, kept me there. I I thought, yeah, this is definitely a good place to work and great team to work with. Was there a moment when you were like, I belong here? Um, Probably, probably a series of small moments, you know, just being able to connect with people that come in and help them. And, you know, it may seem like a really small thing that maybe I get them, I don't know, a pair of shoes from, you know, our clothes closet or something. And which seems kind of routine, but then, you know, a year later they'll come back and they're like, thank you so much for that. And I, you know, I didn't have shoes and you helped me. And and so just hearing that, you know, we are actually helping people definitely helps. But even if we, even if we don't hear that, we, we know that we, what we do is valuable. And yeah, I think that's, that's why we stay. I'm, you know, speaking for everyone I work with, that's, that's why we stay there. I think that when we as Alaskans talk about domestic violence, we know how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a, a positive outcome, something that was, that ended really well, that um, we can use as a, 
like what we're aiming for, mm-hmm. you know, as far as uh, an outcome of domestic violence? Um, I think when when I see things end well, I, I I see you know people people who are safe and you know maybe they're they're continuing to come to the to groups and and then then we can continue to check in with them and and see them and as their kids grow, but to see them remain safe and to recognize you know the warning signs that we that we discussed a bit earlier and to see their kids um, growing up safe and not exposed to that and I and that's kind of a general answer but that's that's the most encouraging thing I think is when we see that cycle being broken and it 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 does take awareness and again it's not it's not the victim's fault but if they can recognize those warning signs and for example a future partner they can maybe avoid that but seeing seeing that cycle being broken I think is I don't know if that answers the question but it that's one of the most encouraging things um, for me and I think that it's the community's responsibility that we're yeah. all safe yeah and that we recognize these things are happening mm-hmm. within the community and to say as a whole we don't like that exactly because you know, often abusers do hide their behavior from those around them and just it's just the victim that sees it but but sometimes it's not sometimes you know your friends may see you know, how the abuser's behaving um, and calling them out on that and not making that acceptable, not laughing it off and not blaming the victim. I, I do think the victim is blamed much of the time. And, and like I mentioned before, you know, by friends and family, her saying, why don't you just leave? Like, like that would end the violence, which it, which it doesn't again. But I think having, having that community awareness of what domestic violence looks like, you know, who who's a victim, who can be a victim, which is everybody, it touches every group of people imaginable, and then and then holding abusers accountable for that behavior and making it clear that they're not justified. They don't have the right to, to behave that way. That would be a success, I think. Lost Anchorage is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music is by Michelle McLaughlin. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska for supporting this podcast at the company man level. <laughs>